In July of this year, the Washington Post published an article with the title, Why These Professors Are Warning Against Promoting the Work of Straight White Men. In this piece, the journalist interviewed two geographers, Carrie Mott and Daniel Kekain, talking about a paper that they just published on what they call the politics of citation. From the article, it says, geographers Carrie Mott and Daniel Cocaine argued in a recent paper that doing so also perpetuates what they call white heteromasculinism, which they defined as a system of oppression that benefits only those who are, quote, white, male, able-bodied, economically privileged, heterosexual, and cisgender, in brackets from the Washington Post, cisgender describes people whose gender identity matches their birth sex. And so this article um, garnered a lot of attention. Some of these, of course, this terminology for some of us in the humanities is like, uh, is quite familiar. But of course, this, this brought a lot of this terminology and the questions of what the politics of citation look like to a wider public. And unfortunately, this attracted sort of the wrong type of attention, I think, is a generous way to put it. Since then, um, both Carrie and Daniel have been under attack, I think is a good way to put it, from members of the alt-right who have been specifically targeting faculty at institutions of higher education. Often overwhelmingly, these, these people tend to be junior faculty, often they're faculty of color, people who are already also vulnerable, people who work on issues of social justice. And so welcome to this episode of PhD Divas on this, I think, very important topic about free speech, higher education, and what the politics of our disciplines look like. I'm Dr. Zain Yao. I'm the co-host of PH Divas, along with Dr. Liz Wayne, who wasn't able to be with us to get today. We're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. And I'm recording this at the University of British Columbia, which is on the ancestral, traditional, unseceded territory of the Musqueam people. So thank you very much, Carrie and Daniel, for being here today, or rather remotely. But <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so perhaps to dial it back a little bit, uh, why not t uh, tell me a little bit about yourselves? Carrie, start. Sure. Um, yeah. So I'm in my second year post PhD. I finished my PhD in 2016, um, and I'm an in instructor at Rutgers in New Jersey. Um, so I'm in a position that is, you know, a good amount of teaching. It's not super focused on research, but I'm, you know, in that place where I'm still trying to. Um, push my research forward and move my career along the kind of typical early career hustle. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> and Daniel? Yeah. Uh, I'm at a kind of similar career stage to Carrie. I was um, lucky enough to get a tenure track job right out of the PhD. I finished last year in 2016. Um, and I'm now at the University of Waterloo, which is in Southern Ontario. Um, yeah. And I, uh, I was writing my my dissertation on workplace politics and anti-work politics and kind of pushing pushing that into the Canadian context moving forward. Um, yeah, and in terms of uh, my position here, University of Waterloo have a system of probationary hire for their uh, tenure track faculty, which means that my, uh, my file will be reviewed after three years and um, they will decide whether to keep me on for the tenure process after that, which mm. um, is kind of um, uh, interesting just in terms of thinking through precarity in the academy and how uh, tenure track faculty are um, uh, kind of potentially being made more insecure in, in these different ways as well. Definitely. And so uh, funnily enough, I also 
finished my PhD in 2016, so we're sort of the uh, 2016 PhD graduation survivors club in a way. <laughs> um, cool. I, I think that this also comes to uh, another interesting issue that I'm sure that geography is similarly beleaguered like uh, literature in my field, where I feel like we're very lucky to get um, any employment at all after graduation, and yet even as we've hit this milestone, like we haven't escaped the system, uh, systemic precarity that uh, plagues all of us to varying degrees. And of course, this, I think, uh, really exacerbates uh, questions of academic freedom and especially the experiences mm -hmm. that the two of you went through. I guess like perhaps to give a little bit more background, I know that since you're, you're both in geography and particularly are interested in like seems like queer and feminist geography, if you'd want to give us a little bit of background on your separate work, and then we'll shift to talking to what brought you together to work on this paper. So Carrie, would you like to start again? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Well, uh, so part of what brought us together is that we both came out of the same PhD program, which is at the University of Kentucky. So, you know, we already knew each other from that. Um, and actually, we started talking about this paper when we were both there as PhD students. Um, and ABD, and we, you know, the, our current jobs were just like a dream on the horizon. Um, <laughs> but my, so my actual research deals with the ways that people deal with racialized conflict in terms of things being, you know, sometimes negotiated positively where people are able to overcome racialized conflict and find, you know, some way to continue working together, but then other situations where racialized conflict prevents people's ability to work together. So, you know, geography is a discipline like our, we're a very interesting discipline because we're both a physical science and a social science. And the like core unifying sort of thematic of geography is space and like analysis of spatial phenomena, things that just happen in space, where they are, why they're there, how that might have changed over time and all of the different like issues um, that show up within different spaces. Um, so we're a very broad field actually, like it's a really creative field and that's a big reason that you know drew me to it because there's just a lot of creative potential in geography because it's just about so much and you can make it about so much and you can draw so many connections to um, like interdisciplinarily with like other fields and things like that. So my research, uh, my dissertation research dealt with activism on the US-Mexico border in Southern Arizona and specifically conflicts within different groups who were um, politically active um, in resisting the militarization of the border. And then, so that was my dissertation and that stuff's all been published or is nearly out. There's a couple more that are uh, coming soon. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Uh, and then, so actually this year and last year, since I've been at Rutgers, I've been focusing on getting a new project off the ground, which looks at the relationship between control over rivers systems in the Pacific Northwest. So through the Columbia Basin, the ways that control over those rivers has a very racialized quality to it, and specifically historical conflict between white settlers in the area and their descendants, of whom I am one, and indigenous people. So I've been working on this like new project that's because I'm from Washington State originally, so it's based where I grew up. Um, and so that's been like my focal point for the last year, year and a half. Um, while I'm simultaneously trying to get like these last couple bits of my dissertation out too. <laughs> Fantastic. Just to roll back just a little bit to clarify some terms, because quite a few of our listeners are not in humanities or social science. Uh, could you 
maybe offer a brief definition of what why we, do we say racialized? And also, if you mm-hmm. want to define particularly uh, feminist geography. Yep, um, that is great. So yeah, we say racialized instead of like race or racial, like something that's racialized means that um, it's been made, race has been made to matter, like somehow race matters in the way that that thing um, is operating in the world. And versus like race, which has more to do with individual identities, um, and racial, which is a way to describe those identities. Um, yeah, it's kind of jargony, actually. I, I probably shouldn't have dropped it, but... <laughs> no, I think it's really useful um, <laughs> for people to know. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but yeah, so, you know, racialized, it, you know, has this meaning, this sense of, like, talking about how race matters to the subject at hand, even though that may not be very obvious, depending on what's going on. And then as far as feminist geography goes, yeah, thanks for asking to clar- for me to clarify that. Um, so within geography, there's been this whole movement that goes back um, since the 1980s, really, or or even earlier, that's trying to focus on the ways that differences in identity shape our different experiences of space. So that's just a way of saying that we all experience spaces differently, depending on who we are and where we're coming from. And um, so there's some with feminist geography in terms of like scholarship and research and and method, a lot of times we're looking at people's emotional experiences of different things and um, things on a more local scale. So we're trying to look at like individual differences in how something is experienced and how that relates to gender, race, age, ability, um, sexuality, or like, you know, really any other kind of like social difference. So even though it's, you know, feminist geography and feminism in general, we associate these terms with gender, um, but that's just one part of the kinds of things that we look at. Thank you, Carrie. I really mm. loved your definition of racialized. I feel like that, that'll definitely help me in my future teaching because you did such a great <laughs> job. Thank you. Um, so, Daniel, would you like to tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So my research questions center around workplace politics and anti-work politics. Uh, and specifically, I'm looking at those themes within the context of entrepreneurship. Uh, and my dissertation looked at entrepreneurship in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. And following the dissertation, uh, I'll be looking at those themes in uh, the Kitchener-Waterloo region, which is where I work. Uh, so the Kitchener-Waterloo region of Southern Ontario. And so I'm thinking about things like how particular working practices, norms, and cultures are reproduced. Um, and this has meant looking at how people describe their commitments or attachments to their work, um, looking at things like hiring practices and retention in office spaces, looking at the, the financial strategies of small firms uh, and the relationship between those strategies and like office culture, um, and thinking about individuals' emotional relationships to their work uh, and discussions of diversity um, in office environments. So one of my kind of primary aims is to think through the relationship between um, the economy and culture um, in these working spaces, um, while kind of acknowledging that those are both very broad uh, terms that are difficult to define. And in my analysis, necessarily includes things like gender and sexuality. Um, uh, So I'm thinking about those themes primarily through the lens of entrepreneurial working cultures. And I think those themes could also be explored through um, in particular, academic working culture. Um, 
but entrepreneurship is kind of the object that I'm I'm focusing on. Um, and the, my questions kind of stem from questions asked by feminist political theorist Kathy Weeks, who's written, who's asked, why do we tend to demand more work and harder work rather than less work or better work? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, those are the kinds of questions that I'm interested in pursuing through my research. Fantastic. Yeah. A quick side note for those who are less familiar with the Canadian higher ed scheme. I, th- I feel like Waterloo is one of the, our most um, tech-oriented universities in Canada. I had a lot of friends who mm-hmm. ended up going to Waterloo. Um, so that seems like a perfect place for your research. So I think yeah. it seems like fairly clear to, to me that even though you do work on different areas, obviously there's areas of confluence because you're um, interested in questions of, of gender identity and power. But would you like to talk a little bit about how these conversations ar- arose in grad school? And particularly, I think um, an important conversation to have is like, and I'm sure that you've been thinking a lot about in your work, like what does it mean to be an ally when when you're a white person, when you're someone from from dominant identities, and it seems to me that like part of the the the, the whole debacle with you guys coming out with the citation of politics was on the one hand, like you were doing this really important work and having it about how the d- very dynamics of power work within the academy, and of course that we're not exempt from it, and it's and you're pointing these things out, but you still came under a, a attack for it, um, and at the same time. You were also sort of modeling a type of politics yourself of what does it mean to support um, a more marginalized scholars. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's a big question, but <laughs> um, no, that's okay. I was just uh, jotting a couple notes. So, um, well, I guess we can start. One of the things you asked us was like how we started thinking about this, um, and actually, we were inspired by one of our. Um, colleagues and professors at the University of Kentucky, Susan Roberts. Um, And this really began at um, an American Association of Geographers conference in Chicago in what year was it, Dan? 2015. Okay. Is that right? Was it 2014? Oh my God. We've done this math so many times and we keep (laughs) redoing it. It was something like, it was whenever I was in Chicago for people that know about the AAG. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so anyway, uh, Susan Roberts gave some uh, comments at an AAG in Chicago, and she was talking about one of our more prominent male geographers in the discipline, who's pretty well known and highly cited. Um, And basically she asked some kind of tough questions of him, trying to understand why it is that he typically doesn't cite women um, Mm -hmm. or uh, men of color in the work that he does, despite the fact that relevant research exists. So um, that got us talking and we actually started talking about this paper in Chicago then it was, you know, I think it was that night that we started talking about it. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, little by little, we drafted a first attempt um, that was rejected with some helpful feedback. (laughs) Uh, And then we, yeah, then we turned it into what it, what it would later become. Um, And then as to the question of what it means to be an ally, um, I mean, it's just such, it's such a huge question. And I think it's important actually that there's not an easy or direct answer Mm -hmm. to that question. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for me, it just means like taking my cues from people in terms of like 
what, um, you know, students of color, colleagues of color, um, people, other people that I know, friends, uh, people I work with through research, you know, things that people tell me that they think is important in terms of what white people should be doing. So one thing that I got a lot out of through my dissertation research process was repeated conversations where people would emphasize that it's white people that should do the work of talking to other white people about white supremacy and Mm -hmm. race um, and that that should not fall on people of color. So for me anyway, that's something that I have just, I just really took that to heart and have tried to, to be mindful of that, I guess, like moving forward in the other work that I do. Um, Yeah. So I'll stop there. I don't know if you want to add some things, Dan. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of adding to the where we come up with this idea uh, story, I think one thing that was really important to note for me in terms of listening to Susan Roberts speak at the AAG and hearing David Harvey's response was that he was uh, immensely ungracious mm. um, with with Susan Susan Roberts' comments. Um, and Dr. Roberts wasn't being, she was, she was very fair and she just said, you know, what does it mean that we're not acknowledging the important work that, uh, not just feminists, but women scholars are doing. And David Harvey, at that point, he had the opportunity to say, you know, look, you're right. Um, I, uh, didn't fight these debates or these women scholars or feminist theories and let's have a conversation about it and maybe... I can work to to do better at that in the future. He he didn't kind of acknowledge that she had a meaningful point. He was just dismissive. And that for me relates to this question of allyship in a really kind of clear way, because I think what he was doing was just simply not listening to her um, Mm -hmm. and dismissing her comments. And yeah, I think for me, the question of, of, of allyship so in my case, I'm also, um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a white scholar, but I'm also um, a, a cis man. Um, and so when I think about allyship, I also think about not just being, about being a, a feminist ally as well. And I think a lot of that is is talking to and educating other men about why feminist issues are important and why gender is uh, an, access of, an access of representational oppression that affects all of us and doesn't only affect women um and so for me that's kind of a big part of how i conceptualize allyship is is talking to other men and in terms of teaching making sure that feminist issues are a part of any syllabus that i write and making sure that it comes up in the classroom and it's not just something that we marginalize to like week 12 of the syllabus (laughs) i've definitely Um, been in classes like that so (laughs) yeah the, the race um, week, and, the woman week, but mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm teaching a class on globalization and, you know, there are so many syllabi online that try to teach globalization without teaching about settler colonialism oh, or slavery. Oh, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, Which, yeah. And for me, if race and gender are not primary categories through which to interrogate the global economy, um, then we're simply not understanding that phenomena in an adequate way. Um, and it limits our ability to know and to critique. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So 
before we get to the whole, before it went, sort of rose to the level of public scholarship, what was the experience like of, of collaborating on the work and what did the research for it look like? Um, I guess, were you also already collaborating, uh, being completely geographically separated in different countries? Like, is collaboration also a norm in geography? Was that also a choice? Mm. Um, what was the process of writing like that, like the, the more professional side of like producing the article? <laughs> Shall I? Yeah, go ahead, Dan. Go ahead. Um, Yeah, I mean, so it took us a really long time to write this paper, (laughs) um, partially because, as Carrie mentioned, we we wrote it as a blog post at first and sent it to like uh, a a a journal's online blog in our discipline, and we got some very helpful feedback, but we got a rejection for that blog post, so we decided to rework it into the longer paper. So I think it ended up taking us nearly two years from Mm. deciding to write it to it getting accepted finally in gender, place and culture. And I think for part of that time we were together and part of that time we were separate. I think most of the time we were separate, Mm -hmm. but there were definitely times where I remember sitting in a coffee shop with you, Carrie, and and talking about this paper. Yeah, I think it was like, it worked out occasionally that we would be in the same place, but I remember a lot of like Skype calls on the Google Doc too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was um, probably like most of the process, honestly. Or no, FaceTime, FaceTime in the Google Doc. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, in terms of, and um, I think Carrie can add to this as well. But in terms of the writing process, sometimes it was uh, wonderful and easy and great, and sometimes it was just really hard. Um, that sounds very familiar. And, yeah. And I think that um, Carrie and I are, uh, we're, we're co-writers now, but we're also very close friends. And so that was really helpful in terms of communication. And there were lots of times where, you know, we sort of said, like, hold up a moment. Let's, we, we really need to have a conversation about what's going on and what we're doing and why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think that we... I, at least I feel like we're in a place where writing together, we, like we learned how to write together while writing this paper. Um, and that in many ways was a really wonderful experience. Yeah. That's fantastic. Definitely. Well, in literature <laughs> and in the humanities, we don't tend to collaborate with each other very much at all. So, I mean, that sounds mm-hmm. like a like a wonderful working relationship and a way to keep motivated perhaps during some of the worst parts of writing, which is a lot of it. But mm-hmm. so how did... After the, um, the article came out, how did it catch the attention of a broader public? And and then I mm. saw in the Washington Post article that um, you ended up also talking to Campus Reform, which is perhaps one of the most notorious Ugh. websites for this type of alt-right watchdog, I don't know, surveillance <laughs> of higher education. Yeah. What exactly happened? So, okay, an important detail in the story is that we never talked to anyone. Oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So it all started when someone from Campus Reform emailed us and had a couple questions. And I knew what Campus Reform was. So, you know, I quick emailed Dan or texted Dan and was like, oh, this is happening. What do we do? You know, Um, so we kind of strategized together. And um, we also like reached out to our chairs and like a few other colleagues for advice first. And, um, you know, and took all of that into account. Um, But we were also thinking like, well, you know, maybe there is just like 
a misunderstanding here that we could clear up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like maybe they do just need us to answer these questions. If only. Um, Yeah. So we did try a little bit and there was like a little bit of an email exchange with this person from Campus Reform. Dan in particular tried very valiantly there. I I gave up quickly, but Dan, um, Dan wanted to see it through a little bit more. Anyway, so that happened. Uh, and then a couple days later, the thing came out, and uh, the campus reform article was what happened first. And then after that, there were multiple articles that came out on other alt-right websites with all kinds of things being said. I mean, most of it just repeated that line that we were like feminist professors saying you shouldn't cite white men, mm. which is not what we said. <laughs> And my favorite one was the one that called us feminist geologists. Because <laughs> um, then I was like, I bet that there probably are feminist geologists and they're probably awesome. But that's not that's not who we are. Uh, anyway, so that happened. And then um, in the midst of all that flurry, we were contacted. We got an email from a Washington Post reporter. But we were super overwhelmed, actually, dealing with all this like hateful stuff that was coming in. And we felt blindsided and totally unprepared to deal with it. So when the Washington Post reporter initially contacted us, we were like, we just wanted to buy like a couple days. So I responded to, we like talked to each other and I responded to her and I was just like, you know, we're really slammed right now. We can talk in a couple days. But then she just published her thing. And that was that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Can I add a little something? Go ahead. Um, the Washington Post reporter contacted us on, I think, I think a Saturday. So it was a weekend, um, and yeah, we were both immensely busy. My mother was actually visiting me, <laughs> so I had no time to like attempt to speak to a reporter. And I think, Carrie, you were also with your family, if I recall. Yeah, we were both with our moms, actually, when it was like at its worst, which was uh, helpful at the time, uh, but also meant that we had to explain it all to our mothers and mediate that. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I remember explaining it to my mom and, and she was like, okay, okay. And then she thought for a moment and she said, but this paper was peer-reviewed, right? And I was like, yes, it was peer-reviewed. <laughs> and she's like, then it's fine then. I was like, yes, it's it's fine. Yeah, um, Not that yeah I like didn't tell my mom for a while. I was kind of trying to downplay it with my family initially, but then it, I was like, they might see stuff online. And I'm also from a really conservative area where like it's totally – it would it is definitely possible that like people that know my family would like read stuff online because they go to those alt-right sites and stuff um so yeah i told my mom i explained it all to her and she was really upset actually and i mean my mom is not a big crier but she she was pretty close and that was actually like probably harder that moment was like harder than anything else in the whole process actually just seeing like how much she was concerned um and my family aren't academics um at least my like immediate family so you know even just like trying to make sense of like what i did to like be in this situation uh it's kind of hard <laughs> yeah I, I think one thing that uh, at least it was fair to some of my friends and I, I don't want to speak for you carrie but i was very naive about how um media cycles work and how quickly pieces get pushed out and mm-hmm. I didn't, I don't think that I expected quite the kind of, I don't know, time commitment of the 24 hour news cycle to, to work in the way that it did in terms of reporting on like every, like 
relatively minor stories, I suppose, in a way. Um, mm. So there was definitely a sense in which I was very unprepared um, for any kind of contact with the media, really. Well, and even dealing with the whole situation, because at the time, we that's I just remember both of us talking to each other throughout where we felt really like blindsided and unprepared. Um, and also like, you know, as a grad student, you're ready for no one to care about your work. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's so true. <laughs> like you're prepared for there to be like no impact, no interest. And like maybe you get like five or ten citations on a piece or something. And that's like a really nice to have, you know, like depending yeah. on your field. So and we were like, this is the opposite. And we had like no training in this problem. <laughs> right. And especially this, especially this piece, I think, because mm. we, our audience was critical human geographers of which there's maybe like, I don't know, 10,000 in the world. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I think, and I, I think Carrie feels this way too, that like my empirical research is like, relevant and interesting and important and i would love to <laughs> to speak about it to the public mm -hmm. um but this paper was directed very specifically toward an academic community of geographers and wasn't ever intended we never we never expected it to be read by anybody in um in a public sphere at all mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i can't help but be struck that Part of what we've been talking about is also obviously the, the timelines um, within our professional spheres and then the public spheres work so differently. As you said, like this paper took two years, but then suddenly you were expected to respond on a weekend by the next day to this, this news mm -hmm. cycle. Um, and I think you've already started speaking to this, but would you like to talk a little bit about like um, what sort of reflections you've had on the role of public scholarship, but also like as you keep in, you've both been saying, blindsided is the term that keeps coming up. What type of what type of support should departments be giving? And again, like training even for ju uh, junior faculty, grad students, and so forth. Especially since it wasn't even like you were looking for this type of public platform, but it sort of found you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, it's definitely a big topic that people need to be confronting right now. And I think, I mean, I think we can only really expect it to uh, become more intense and for these kinds of things to be more common. Um, also, I just want to say to like what Dan and I went through, it has settled down um, considerably. I mean, it was, it was really, it was like intense in the summer and we were getting all these hateful messages sent to us and to others at our institution and things like that. But, um, you know, it has since settled down, but I've, I know other people who are going through things, um, that are far, far worse. Um, and where they, it just occupies all of their time because they're constantly trying to mediate this stuff because things on the internet just have a life of their own. So mm -hmm. whatever you do as a scholar, like as an academic, uh, you know, you control your voice, to a certain extent, but then the way that people take it is completely out of your hands. Um, and I think like Zion, you sent, I remember you sent a link to the Tressy. Um, I always want to just call her Tressy MC because that's her Twitter handle. I know, I same, as do I. But yeah. yeah, yeah, but she, she has this great piece um, where she's talking about how, um, yeah, institutions, like if they want you to do public scholarship, they have to be ready to protect you if this happens. And not every institution can. Um, so actually, Dan and I have been working on a, a follow-up piece um, 
that we're part of a, uh, we're, there's an upcoming special issue of a geography journal that's focused specifically on this question of like public engagement, public um, dialogue is the word that they use. Um, so we have written this like second piece to kind of talk through our experience and reflect on that a little bit. Um, but it's really hard. And, you know, the, the public, the, the quote unquote public, people don't understand the difference between like a non-tenure track instructor position and a full professor or like a postdoc. You know, if you have like doctor before your name or you teach at a university, which you could be a grad student still, then you're a professor. Um, so even that aspect of it, like the precarity factor and you know, of course, like we're trying to like publish and like move our careers along and, and we're conscious of the need to be doing all of that. But then, you know, this thing that happened, it was just really hard to, to deal with. And I was super felt really thankful. I think, I mean, Dan can speak to his experience, but we both um, had good institutional support. Um, and Rutgers was great about um, protecting me through this process. And I, my department was all supportive um, as far as they knew, because that's part of the problem with this stuff, too, is that you in the interest of protecting yourself, you go quiet on social media and you don't respond to the emails people are sending you. And you're kind of trying to just like hide out and wait for it to stop. Mm -hmm. But that means people don't know what you're going through and they can't actually support you because they don't know. Um so anyway, I don't, I'm just like saying a bunch of things right now and I, <laughs> I think I'll just see what Dan thinks because you probably want to add some stuff. Yeah, I guess I, the main thing that I um, want to say is just sim in a similar way to you, Carrie, the media relations team here at UW were just really fantastic. Um, but I didn't know to reach out to them in the first place, which was, mm. um, which speaks again to that kind of naivety about dealing with the media um, but had I thought to reach out to them, <laughs> uh, that, that would probably have been, uh, as in thought to reach out to them before even the campus reform people contacted us. Um, I think that would have been really helpful. Um, and I'm likely to do that for future projects, um, because I'll do things like put out press releases and, uh, they coached me through interview techniques that I didn't end up actually kind of following through with. Yeah. The other thing that I do want to say is that our experiences were very different. Um, my The harassment that I received was, uh, I think, less intense than the harassment that you received, Carrie. And I think part, part of that is to do with me being in a Canadian institution, and part of it is to do with um, me not being um, a woman. And also, you were first author on the paper. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I still got my fair share of um, pretty hateful um, material in my inbox. Um, yeah. Were, were you guys in danger of being doxxed? I don't think that that was happening. Uh -huh. I think, uh, it easily could have. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's definitely a thing that happens more and more. I, a friend of mine that's been going through a similar, uh, and much more elevated situation. That's definitely been a part of their experience. Um, I don't, as far as I know, that wasn't happening. I didn't see anything about it. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, not as far as I knew um, on my end either. Yeah, I was going to add that, like, definitely I think a point of concern is that I feel like academics are particularly vulnerable because it's just an institutional norm that, like, your office is published online, your office number is mm -hmm. published online, things like that. Like, there's so much more that's immediately publicly available because that's sort of just the standard in higher education, and that seems particularly dangerous um yeah 
<laughs> yeah, particularly dangerous in a society where there's no discussion about what's a useful way to engage with a public or with an academic. Um, like, I think in a nominal sense, it's great that we have public offices that people can go to, but that's only going to be valuable if there's an already agreed upon standard for discussion discourse um, that was certainly not upheld in our case. And so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll link to the tr- a piece by Tressie, but the phrase of hers that sticks with me, where she's talking about particularly how uh, black women academics who are already the most vulnerable um, tend to be also under the most attack, is that in her phrasing, uh, institutions want everything but the burden. So they want all the, mm-hmm. the glory and attention that comes from public scholarship. But uh, when it comes to actual responsibility in terms of protecting scholars, that tends to be very, uh, quite variable, though I'm very glad to hear that for both of you, you had a lot of support from your places of work. Yeah, I mean, we definitely did. But as Dan said, we didn't know that we had that. Like, I'm, you know, because we were both, the, it was, we were one year in, not even a complete year, because we both, you know, started in the fall. Well, I started in the fall, Dan, maybe a little bit later, even, but we were in, you know, we were new at our institutions. Um, and I didn't know the resources. Um, but, you know, now I do. So I <laughs> like Dan was saying, in the future, I'll definitely get in touch with those people uh, earlier on, and I'll just be a little bit more savvy about how I handle things. Um but I also really feel that I, um, you know, as a person that's on like a, a kind of uncertain year to year contract position, I think if I was at a different school, I probably would have lost my job. I really feel strongly that that would have could have been a possibility if I was not where I am right now. Um, so I was pretty grateful. Um, and yeah, it's just a really in this academic world where like increasingly there's untenured positions or positions that aren't tenure track and then people you know make it work through like putting adjuncting uh, multiple places simultaneously or like long-term like instructor lecturer positions long-term research positions um you know it's like the side of that where it's the hustle that we're all like participating in we're just like trying to move ourselves along and get something that's like more sustainable like more long-term but in the meantime, um, you're really, really vulnerable. And this stuff was just completely out of our hands. Um, but I, I don't know, we were just both really fortunate to be where we were at the time, I think. Yeah, it made me think a lot about the different kinds of institutions that there are. And, you know, I work at a huge R1 university. Carrie, you work, you work Rutgers is an R1, I, I think. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like gigantic. Yeah. <laughs> But if, you know, um, I wonder what the resources would be like at a much smaller liberal arts college. What if you're mm-hmm. an academic who is maintaining an active research profile, but is uh, ha- does not yet have a permanent job and you're, you're working at like an adult teaching college or something like that? Um, mm-hmm. Presumably those kinds of institutions would not have potentially any media relations um, people on staff and wouldn't be expected to support academics with an active research profile because they're a teaching college maybe so it yeah i i wonder how different um this circumstance would have been if we'd been in more precarious like even more precarious circumstances Mm -hmm. Um, so as we start closing up the episode i was wondering how will this experience change your work 
and if not necessarily your work, obviously your engagement with aspects of public scholarship. I think one of the reasons why this article in particular gained a lot of attention was because we were using we were using language borrowed from bell hooks. We were using mm. language borrowed from uh, activist discourses um, and a lot of other articles about citation use a very um, scientific academic language mm. that I think Carrie and I were both kind of um, quite purposeful in our, in our decision not to reproduce. Mm-hmm. And so like using a term like white, white heteromasculinism, um, I think is one of the reasons why this piece got picked up in the way that it, it did. And that's made me kind of think a lot about, you know, how, how we write and how we can write together in the future. I don't think that I would want to stop using that kind of language, of course, but um, I think that I would uh, definitely like, I don't know, think about it more, even if, <laughs> even if we just decided to keep on using it, which I suspect we would. Mm-hmm. Also, the art, I mean, just a point I wanted to make um, is that the way that this all happened kept the focus on us as white people who wrote this article. Mm -hmm. But a lot of our goal in the piece and the reason why we wanted to do it was to highlight all of this other stuff that has been written, most of which has been written by women of color in Mm -hmm. geography. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we were we and also like it's a long conversation in certain circles in our field. It is not everywhere, but it's a long conversation, the politics of citation and this like dynamic of like highly cited white men who cite other highly cited white men. Um, You know, that's a conversation that goes way back. So we were even concerned that people in geography anyway, would be kind of like tired of the conversation. You know, we thought people would be sort of like, Oh, we're talking about this again. Um, but, you know, what ended up happening, at least through this, like, you know, the dissemination online in the Washington Post article and stuff was that people treated it as if Dan and I created this concept. But the whole paper was about how we didn't. <laughs> the whole paper <laughs> was about, like, this rich, uh, you know, all these rich conversations happening around citation and around the, like, uh, raced and gendered um, nature of knowledge production um, right. And, you know, a lot of the scholarship that we were drawing on um, was written by people who are not white men. So that was hard to kind of negotiate in and all, too. So, I mean, I don't know what that would mean for us moving forward, but I do think that's something I want to I don't know if it's even possible to mediate that in the future, but it's something I'll be mindful of because, um, yeah, it was just really troubling to to have people like attributing the concepts we were dealing with to us when we wrote a paper that was like really literate. I mean, our, the, the research material for this paper was literature. Like we were just making this literary argument based Mm -hmm. on all of these sources. Um, and we were just kind of trying to like present this array of information to people. Um, that's a long conversation with lots of other very interesting, very important, amazing scholars who, have already been talking about these things long before we came along. Um, yeah. Yeah. Our attempt was very much to kind of highlight how certain voices are marginalized in the discipline, but what ended up happening was that the focus ended up being on us as two white scholars in the end. So I think that's just kind of a, and this is, I think one of Carrie's main points is, is that that kind of highlights how race functions as like a a limit and condition for discourse Mm -hmm. in, 
um, in the way that these conversations are reproduced. Yeah. Thank you so much for addressing that, um, this unfortunate meta level of the whole backlash. I was also going to say for our listeners, uh, at least in, in my particular academic sphere, I've been seeing the question of the politics of citation coming up from an academic I really admire, Sarah Ahmed, who tweets mm-hmm. uh, tweets a lot about the importance of like changing our citational practices. And I think it also comes to this larger question, although you wrote this for, of course, critical geographers, this is thinking about how citation itself is a type of politics and a type of power in all of our disciplines is something that we should question, especially in disciplines where it may seem naturalized that, of course, there's certain people that you cite over and over again. But I remember that even in the last couple of years, there's other work done that showed, for example, that if citation is a type of measure of of one's power and acclaim, like men tend to cite themselves at far higher rates than than women do. Mm-hmm. Like self-citation is also a thing. Like there's always a mm-hmm. power dynamic that's going on regardless of the discipline. Thank you so much to the two of you for joining me, especially because we're recording this at the very end of the semester where everything is incredibly <laughs> hectic. Um, although I'm so so glad that at least you're, everything, the backlash in the summer has been tra- trailing off. And I hope that things going forward will be uh, much more manageable and it will just, quote unquote, just be the regular concerns of being junior faculty, uh, <laughs> which is already enough in and of itself uh-huh. without having to worry about, I'm sure, like death threats or what have you. Are there any final comments you'd like to share before um, we finish? Um, well, just thanks for having us on. Um, yeah, PhD This is an awesome show. And yeah, what, what you and Liz do is amazing. So thanks for doing it, especially on top of all the requirements of being a junior faculty member. <laughs> yeah, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. This has been a really excellent experience. No, thank you. Yeah. This has been absolutely um, a pleasure to talk to the both of you. And so with that, thanks for listening to another episode of PH Divas. Again, I'm Dr. Zainiel representing the humanities. If you like this episode, please follow, reshare, like, uh, retweet, all that type of good stuff. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Twitter, and Facebook. And thanks again to our guests, and take care of yourselves. Okay.